Hello and welcome to a New Mexico In Focus podcast episode. Today of day, day of record is Friday, September 24th, 2021. We hope you have had an outstanding weekend or week and will have an outstanding weekend. Let us know what's going on in your world, what we should be paying attention to on the show. We always love to hear from you. You can do that by leaving us a review. Uh, be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Like uh, and spread the word. You can even leave us uh, voice messages on here or you can hit us up on the New Mexico and Focus social media platforms, whether that's Facebook or YouTube, Twitter or Instagram or in all of those places. And uh, we have a lot of stuff to get to this week, and we want to kick things off with the big get of the week, an exciting interview here for us from correspondent Antonia Gonzalez, Quana uh, Ch- Chasing Horse. Um, I'm not sure if you know that name. No doubt you have seen her images of note of recent. She was one of the people that everybody seemed to be talking about from the Met Gala, uh, which is obviously one of the high-profile places to be seen at, and Quana Chasing Horse uh, grabbed a lot of headlines and spotlights from that event. She's also been part of New York Fashion Week. She lives in Alaska, but took a few minutes out to sit down and talk to Antonia about a variety of things, uh, what her experiences have been like. Uh, as you'll hear her say, she's been an activist, especially an environmental activist, as long as she's been a model. So how being a model helps to elevate her platform, as well as what uh, she plans to do next in the industry, how she deals with difficult situations around cultural appropriation in the industry, and just sort of the moment that the native fashion industry is having these days. If you're the type that goes to Indian Market every year, which just finished up about a month ago, they've now incorporated an annual fashion show in that event. So definitely something that's getting a lot more attention than it used to. So without further ado, let's kick it over to Antonia Gonzalez. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Quana Rose Chasing Horse Pots is making waves in the fashion world. The 19-year-old model recently made a splash at New York Fashion Week, walking the runway for well-known designers. She also surfaced at the Met Gala, decked out in Native American turquoise and silver jewelry. She's been featured in a number of magazines and is not only a rising model, she's a Native rights advocate who fights for the protection of the environment and Native ways of life. I caught up with Quana this week after her whirlwind time in New York. Quana, welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Thank you for having me. What was your experience like at New York Fashion Week? It was overwhelming. It was a lot, very, um, you know, a lot of energy, um, very chaotic, but I had a lot of fun. Overall, I'd never had one single bad experiences. Um, you know, being welcome into those spaces is not common for Indigenous people yet. And the more we're starting to see uh, Native people, Indigenous people being welcomed into these spaces, it can feel very, um, you know, I, like you feel like an outsider. You know, you don't feel like you belong there. Um, 
there were certain moments where I felt alone and like no one really understood me and what I stood for. Um, but there are also really good moments where people would come up to me and remind me like, you know, you're here for a reason, uh, you're representing your people so beautifully and it's okay to feel um, very alone, but don't forget that there are people that support you and our, your ancestors are walking with you. So having those little reminders and even my aunties texting me, letting me know um, that I'm not alone, even though I may feel lonely, that my ancestors are with me all the time, that um, our communities, our indigenous communities are rooting for me. And that really kept me grounded the entire time I was there. So it was amazing. I had an overall great experience, very blessed to be able to, you know, represent in that way during fashion week. And um, yeah, it was definitely like, I'm still having a really hard time processing everything that had happened and everyone that I had met, um, all the things that I did. And it was, um, truly an honor. And what does it mean to be able to have a voice um, bringing indigenous representation to the fashion industry? What does that mean to you? It means a lot to me. I still sometimes have a hard time finding the words to articulate it, but genuinely like walking into those spaces and um, you know, like I was saying, feeling alone, but remembering that I'm representing my nation, my people, indigenous people all over, you know, that really kept me motivated. And, you know, I constantly told myself, like, even though you're here and you may be experiencing these beautiful things, you know, um, you're here representing so much more than just yourself. And I always have to remind myself, like, I'm here not only to, you know, make myself you know, um, look better or have, you know, my career shoot up in that way. But genuinely for me, it has nothing to do with myself. Like I take pride in who I am and where I come from. And that's what is, you know, the main reason why I've started doing anything in the first place um, is just having that pride and um, staying grounded and believing that no matter where I walked in this world that I had something with me, that I could bring something to the table, that I um, can educate people on our people's issues, our, um, what we face on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's very powerful knowing that um, people are starting to recognize that, recognize our beauty in not just fashion, but the way we carry ourselves and how we um, protect the land, we protect the waters, how it's not about us as people, it's about the nation, the entire collective as a whole. So yeah. And sometimes the fashion industry is criticized for appropriating you know, native culture, native design, um, native traditions, but being an indigenous person and being able to have a voice and being able to show a true representation, how is that going to make a difference for you? So how I really started modeling um, and all of this was, you know, I started using my voice and my platform to raise awareness for many different things, overall indigenous sovereignty. I had done a lot of work 
with our communities here in Alaska, um, protecting the Arctic Wildlife Refuge, um, spreading awareness for missing and murdered indigenous women and so on. Having those that kept me grounded and reminding myself that, you know, I am not trying to be a sellout. I don't want to use, you know, the word like, oh, a native model and just use it for my own, you know, um, look or whatever it is. I wanted to be able to bring not just myself, but what I stand for, what I represent to every space that I walk in in the fashion world. And when it comes to appropriation, you know, when I walk into these spaces and they're trying to put something like very appropriated, like clothing or whatever, they're trying to put something on me and I don't feel comfortable because it's not, you know, made by an indigenous person or this designer didn't um, collaborate with an indigenous person that the these designs were stolen and used to, you know, profit them. I, I tell the stylist, like, I'm not really comfortable with this. I just like, it feels like I'm, it's appropriating my culture and my people. And if this was made or collaborated with an indigenous person, I wouldn't have an issue. And I haven't had a single problem with it. They completely respect it, which is very nice for me to know because the first time I had to say something about it, I was very nervous. Like, I didn't think that they would respect that. I thought that they would, you know, tell me, oh, you have to, though. Like, you know, you have to wear this. This is for this shot or whatever it is. But um, my favorite part about Fashion Week was walking for Gabriella Hurst. She partnered with Naomi Glasses and her family and the Navajo Nation to create this beautiful line and different pieces in her collection and she also partnered with other indigenous people from other regions to create these beautiful clothing and she went out of her way to find native models she told the casting director and the casting director herself was like really wanting to show that representation and have as many indigenous people there because if she was collaborating with indigenous people she wanted to represent that in the best way possible she wanted to embody that and so i think i you know, what walked into that space feeling confident and not alone. Like that was the first time I didn't feel alone seeing other indigenous models there and like connecting with them and like laughing with them and, you know, talking about how similar our features are because, you know, we all had like the native nose and whatever it was walking into that space and not feeling so alone was so beautiful and being able to bring that and also connect on that level is very special because I think that was the first time in fashion history that that was done, having more than one native model um, and collaborating, collaborating with native designers to create a beautiful line and represent it and embody it in that way. So I think it's extremely important that instead of appropriating, just reach out to other indigenous people and artists and designers and collaborate with them not steal their designs our sacred designs and whatever it is it's extremely important and I feel very blessed to be a part of it and there are a lot of uh, different native fashion designers um, across the country and there are many native fashion shows including at the Santa Fe India market there's a lot of different events that showcase fashion are these types of events you know, getting more attention or do you think they're still, you know, a, a close secret? I, I think they're getting more attention. I walked into Fashion Week and someone mentioned 
the Santa Fe, um, you know, that whole beautiful space, like they were asking me so much questions about it. And I unfortunately wasn't able to make it and I wanted to so bad. Um, but I think it really, they are really starting to get out there more. And every time that I'm able to bring up a native designer or talk about um, our own fashion, I include that as much as possible. And I always say there's so many beautiful designs by native designers, artists. There's so many beautiful lines being created that is genuine, that isn't stolen, that isn't marketed to, you know, um, hurt, hurt anyone. And I think, you know, being able to um, share that with people in the fashion world, um at that level is extremely important and it brings me so much pride and joy because people are like wow i had no idea and then they go home thinking about it and like they go home and they're like i learned something new today i'm gonna look it up and i've had a lot of people reach out to me after a shoot or after whatever i got done working on they text me later on and they're like hey i really appreciate everything that you had to say i had no idea i went home and did my own research and i will continue to follow and share as much as possible and that's what truly brings me joy is being able to make that change there and you had mentioned your work as a native advocate and also a protector um, being Han Guichen and also Lakota um, what what is your message to these different issues that you bring to the table um there's so many different I feel like messages I can bring but overall you know, when I'm in these spaces, when I talk about my work, um, I have done a lot. I went to DC and I lobbied and I met AOC and talked with congressmen and women on protecting our sacred lands and what that means, not just for us as indigenous people, but for the world as a whole. Um, I always I always include that indigenous people protect 80% of the world's biodiversity. And that um, that's an extremely important thing because not a lot of people know that. And I think that the more people know about how much we do as a community, then they realize like, wow, these people are really going out of their way and putting themselves on the line to protect what's left and what's precious to us, what's sacred to us. And that's extremely beautiful and important. But I feel like um, people are so drawn to the fact that I had made it to the Met Gala, that I had been in Fashion Week. And, you know, anytime I have um, any kind of speaking engagement or a chance to talk about where I come from, who I am, what I stand for, I go out of my way as much as possible to bring up how important that work is to me because it's the main reason why I started modeling in the first place. I was doing a lot of the advocacy work and people started recognizing that. And um, because of that recognition, you know, I am where I'm at today and I want to continue that. And I want to bring that everywhere I go because it's extremely important. And I feel like I carry so much traditional knowledge that from, you know, being passed down from my grandma to my mom to me and my ancestors before that, it's extremely important to share with the world that we have that that you know we have so much um teachings and practices that keep us strong in many different ways and our connections to the land is extremely important and where can we find you next what's up next for you 
Um, I am headed off to Paris soon, so that's what's next. We'll see what comes out of that, but Paris Fashion Week. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on New Mexico PBS. Thank you for having me. I truly appreciate it. It's an honor. Um, thank you for wanting to speak with me and I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Time to introduce the line panel for this week. These are folks, as you know, who do a lot of homework each and every week as we tackle two to three topics. Uh, and we have a rotating pool this week. Our regulars, a couple are back, Serge Martinez of the UNM Law School and Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group. Also thrilled to have back Martha Burke. She is a political psychologist. She's written the book, Your Voice, Your Vote. Uh, always love to have Martha's opinions, and this week is no exception, especially on this first topic. It's one that's been out there a few weeks, but we wanted to sort of let the stage get set uh, here in New Mexico. Uh, we're talking about Texas's controversial abortion ban bill that was passed again about a month ago. And you may recall this bill makes um, most abortions illegal and also provides an opportunity for anyone to basically sue a doctor or anyone who helps a woman get an abortion. And we knew that this was going to have a rollover effect here in New Mexico with people coming here uh, for the procedures. Uh, in addition, as you will hear, our own Attorney General Hector Balderas has put himself in the mix on the fight of this as the constitutionality of that uh, law appears to be front and center. We've seen two lawsuits filed this week. Uh, interestingly, both of those uh, the people bringing the lawsuits don't actually seem to be uh, pro-life. They want to force this issue so that the constitutional questions are uh, addressed by the courts. So with that set up, let's send you right over to our line opinion panel and host, Gene Grant. By now, we've all heard about the Texas abortion law that bans terminating a pregnancy after six weeks. It effectively deputizes the citizenry to enforce the ban through lawsuits and was crafted that way to, at least initially, avoid some constitutional questioning. Now, our question today is how it's impacting New Mexico and the clinics here that offer abortions. Here to offer thoughts are our line opinion panelists, line regular and founder of the public relations business that bears his name, Tom Garrity is back. Another regular UNM law professor, Serge Martinez, joins us once again, and it's been a while since Martha Burke has been here, but we welcome her back, the activist, author, and radio host to our table. Now, Martha, as you follow this law's implementation, what are the people you're talking to telling you about the on-the-ground effects so far? What are you hearing? Well, it's causing a lot of hardship for women mm -hmm. here in Mexico, as well as across our borders, <clears throat> because many women in Texas are very few clinics in southwest southeast texas uh so they were depending on the clinic in el paso mm -hmm. that is now gone it is all that means it's not accessible to southern new mexico either southeastern new mexico has no clinics mm -hmm. that offer abortions so women have to travel here to San, uh, to albuquerque santa fe doesn't have a clinic either they're, they're all in albuquerque mm -hmm. And that's two or 300 miles, depending on what 
part of the state you live in down there. Mm -hmm. Many women can't take off work for two or three days to make arrangements for childcare by the gas. Think about that. A lot right. of people don't have that extra hundred bucks to buy gas to travel 300 miles. So it's going to be a hardship. I will have to say that I am very pleased that our Attorney General Baldera mm -hmm. said he will defend any clinics here right. that happen to be um, attacked by these vigilantes, and that's what they are. Mm -hmm. uh, he tried to bring suits against the clinics, although technically it only applies to Texas. You never know what these nutcases are going to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Martha, I got I to say the numbers are kind of daunting. You would think there were 55,000 abortions in Texas in 2019, something like 3,800 here in New Mexico. I mean, just the sheer numbers. How are we supposed to absorb a third of that number, just, just to pick a number? That's an extraordinary amount of, of uh, uh, women seeking services. Well, it absolutely is, Gene. And, and even though many of them are not going to be able to travel, mm -hmm. uh, a number will. I read something recently, I guess yesterday, that the requests are up 64%. Right one of our clinics here in uh, Albuquerque mm -hmm. and that is come all coming from Texas. So it's sort of hurting women coming and going. It's uh, the women here in New Mexico are having a harder time accessing the state uh, facilities ah. and deal with uh, the influx of women from Texas, those that can afford and have the wherewithal to get here. Mm -hmm. Valderas uh, has all also said, and I'm very gratified about this, that he will defend any clinics that are attacked uh, legally on this. And I'll just have to throw in that Uber and Lyft are saying also that they will defend any of their employees that get sued over this. You know, hmm. you can, uh, according to the Texas law, anybody can be sued. Right by anybody else, whether they live in Texas or not. Uh, if you're in New Mexico and you gave money mm -hmm. to women across the border, uh, you could be sued here. Let me, let so, me, let me talk to, uh, turn to Serge on that point. It's interesting, we've now seen two lawsuits, Serge, filed against that Texas doctor. You know, he said openly that he's violated the ban and neither person who filed necessarily supports the law, which is interesting, but will this force that issue of constitutionality? I mean, do we need to just get to that point and get this get this on, so to speak? Uh, I mean, I mean, that's the the intent of both of these is to say, yes, this is going to be, um, you know, this is this is what's going to set the chain in, the dominoes in motion to, mm -hmm. to get this to, to some sort of constitutional test. I, I'm not really sure. I mean, both of them have openly said that they're doing it, you know, for reasons that are not consistent with the with the law what that would mean to a court i don't know mm -hmm. um or whether you know the actual questions that need to be raised and addressed for constitutional review purposes are going to actually come out of these two cases mm -hmm. so i can't say for sure about these two cases i don't know enough but i mean it's this is exactly what the supreme court when they said we can't review this our hands are tied because you know this is just so clever we we can't right. we can't possibly look at this which I don't know if you can tell. Um, I'm not really on board with. I don't. I, I found their their reasoning uh, quite disingenuous. But that said, right? It's they're saying we need to have a very specific set of circumstances that are going to, you know, force us to to address this. And mm -hmm. whether this will be that, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, this is 
this is just the tip of the iceberg. I suspect we'll see lots more of this uh, as this tries to play itself out. That's right. Tom, the twist on this obviously is that the citizenry, <laughs> you know, is the entity that enforces this law. This is, you know, unheard of in a lot of ways. It just, what's the upside? What's the downside? How do you see this? Well, you know, it really comes down to, you know, the, it's the power of elections and voting. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these rules would not, you know, uh, be in play, whether, you know, regardless of what your view is on this particular topic, uh, if not for the elections. And, uh, you know, so what we're seeing is nationally is that states uh, have been lining up over the last couple of years, anticipating a U.S. Supreme Court ruling on Roe versus Wade, as far as either readdressing the case or you know perhaps even uh, addressing a new case, mm -hmm. New Mexico, uh, uh, I think two sessions ago addressed um, you know the abortion issue. Uh, Texas now is addressing the abortion issue, both in very different ways. Uh, Florida is uh, is reportedly looking at it. So you know it's it's really comes down to is I know we're also going to be talking about redistricting a little bit later today mm -hmm. about you know the power of the vote is what it really comes down to. Mm -hmm. Tom, I, I got to ask you this, though. It's doubtful whatever happens here in New Mexico as a result of this Texas law is going to change anyone's mind on abortion. So how have you seen policymakers responding to this? Or, or, or will they? <laughs> Maybe I should ask that as well. Well, I think policymakers have responded, uh, okay. you know, as far as with their vote, uh, you know, as far as, uh, uh, and I, I uh, forgive me, I, I don't remember the exact uh, law that was uh, passed by the uh, the legislature, mm -hmm. but you know, the policymakers in the past uh, have been very much influenced uh, through the Catholic Church. Right. Uh, they you know, Catholic Church has been very vocal in uh, you know it, in its position on this particular issue, and a number of other groups have as well on both sides of the issue. Mm -hmm. So you know, policymakers. Um, are definitely hearing from both sides. Uh, and, uh, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, uh, in this particular political environment that we're in right now, uh, I, I don't think that there are many reasonable voices mm -hmm. uh, at this particular uh, table, not our table, but, you know, as far as sure. in this discussion when they're talking to the electeds. Mm -hmm. Martha, we did have some movement this past... Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but just want, just want to point out, we did have some movement on the abortion law, of course, here in New Mexico that got repealed. I'm interested in your point, uh, the same point about policymakers. What's their next move on the chessboard here? Well, I, I wanted to add a footnote about that Please. law because mm -hmm. at the time people were saying, oh, it's an old law, it doesn't matter. We have uh, national policy as long as Roe lasts. Well, Roe may not last mm -hmm. uh, because as Tom says, it comes down to the electorate. There are over 25 other cases trying to make their way to the Supreme Court from various states to overturn Roe. Mm -hmm. So even if this Texas law is invalidated, the next one up is coming up in December out of Mississippi. Right. The goal has always been, even if abortion remains legal, you can't get one. Right. Because either the clinic doesn't exist or the waiting period, you can't afford to go somewhere and wait 24 hours and that sort of thing. So. Uh, the pro-choice movement is being attacked coming and going, as they say. Mm -hmm. Let me spin back real quick to uh, something you mentioned earlier, Martha. That was Hector Balderas. He signed on to the DOJ lawsuit challenging that Texas law. Our attorney general called it, quote, ridiculous, this law. And he has a legit worry, it seems, from some that it will create health problems, not just for Texans, but for New Mexicans. <laughs> you know, I, I got to answer you, what's the weight of him signing on to this, signed by 23 other states as well? 
I think it's a huge weight. I think it is a very strong message from our attorney general. And of course, we saw in the legislature when they overturned the old pre-row law, uh, New Mexico stands for women. Mm -hmm. Now, the change any time, as Tom says, with the votes, we have redistricting coming up. We don't know what the state legislature will look like after that. But for right now, uh, I admire the attorney general's speaking out, his doing something about it to the extent that he can. Mm-hmm. And we just got to keep New Mexico pro-choice. Good point there. Serge, real quick, we're a little short on time here, but let me widen the lens a little bit with the conservative Supreme Court. Conservative states, as Tom mentioned, crafting laws, anticipating or inviting even a legal challenge. Is that strategy, uh, you know, a process, judicial activism? I mean, how do we view this as a moment in time, this little era we're in here? Mm -hmm. No, this is 100% judicial activism by inaction on this one, right? right? The the process, there's there's a playbook here that just was, they chose not to follow it and let this law take effect. And effectively in Texas right now, you know, Roe versus Wade is not the law of the land. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court gave its blessing to that, right? They are, you know, this is, the court has been going on a tour recently trying to say, we're not partisan hacks, we're not partisan hacks. But everything they are doing displays partisanship. And it's, you know, the court is actively delegitimizing itself through the things that it's doing, mm-hmm. calling it activism inactive or, or um, you know, originalism, call it what you want. This is a court using, you know, it's, a conservative majority to reshape the law of the land. Mm-hmm. All, all goes back to what Tom said, elections have consequences, right? We're out of time, but returning just a few minutes to talk redistricting. Sticking with the line opinion panel now, you have hopefully by now had a chance to see that the Citizen Redistricting Committee here in New Mexico has uh, released their first proposed maps for redrawing political boundaries for congressional races, state legislative races, all of the political um, boundaries that we have for all of the different political races. Uh, And there are a bunch to look at. We encourage you, if you haven't already, go to nmredistricting.org and you can go through all those maps. There is the opportunity to uh, see past public input on this, uh, as well as draw your own maps, play with it. There's an app, it's called Districter, which you'll find there, and you can drop your own maps and provide your own feedback. Now that we have these proposed maps, the next couple weeks are gonna be fast and furious as the redistricting committee, which was set up last year by the legislature to handle this once every decade task and try to keep it nonpartisan and non-political. They'll be hitting up 10 different locations in about eight days, gathering input on these proposed maps before finalizing uh, their list of recommended suggestions to the legislature. And so wanted to get the line and their opinions on this and the process, how it's going so far, if it's doing what it's set out to do, if it's building momentum so that lawmakers will accept one of the proposed maps that was part of the fight to get this passed in the first place. The original bill would allow the redistricting committee to pick the final maps. Uh, The compromise was that they would pick proposals that the lawmakers could still pick and choose from or even amend if they wanted to. So we will see how this process affects 
the political fight when it gets to that point. But right now, let's hear from host Gene Grant and The Line. On Tuesday, the Citizen Redistricting Committee begins an 11-day, eight-meeting sweep around New Mexico to present and explain its newly released set of proposed maps for federal, state, and local political districts. You can access that full schedule and tune into live streams of those public hearings on our website, NewMexicoPBS.org. Now, Serge, let me start with you. Anything jump off the page to you in terms of any of those maps? I just want to ask a real broad question here because there's so many maps, so many things to get into, but was there one that really just kind of grabbed you? Uh, yeah, I, absolutely, Eugene. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm an Albuquerque resident, and when I saw the map that wanted to put Albuquerque and Santa Fe and cabin these, these two places into one single district, I was a little bit surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I understand it's one of many, and the idea is urban, put, up, put, as, put as many urban areas as possible. But first of all, I was curious as to how that could actually work numbers-wise. But right. second, I thought it was uh, a... a, a what, what, what's, what's the uh, what's the concern? I'm I'm curious. What's your concern with that with that particular proposal? This you know Uber CD one you know that has just this narrow yeah. thing, but it's all urban, all packed with population. Well, I was surprised mm-hmm. more than anything. But when I you know unpack it a little bit, right? That is there's there's a lot more to this than just the definition of who is urban, who is not urban, uh-huh. and and these re- redistricting is always contentious, but historically has been a question of you know, trying to smash everybody possible, trying to put people who you might think think the same into one particular district to dilute the power of the people who think that way. Mm-hmm. But there are also other aspects of this, right? Especially in urban, suburban, or rural rather divides, there's often a racial aspect yep. that I think we need to, to be aware of. And, you know, those sorts of things can can get ugly when you think about how we're redistricting. And so I am, you know, I'm aware of that and very concerned about mm-hmm. ways that we use urban or rural as a proxy for other statements that's and it. any other sort of labeling. That's why we love having you on the show, man. You just get underneath it. I, I, I like that answer a bunch. Uh, Tom, the redistricting committee will gather that public input before coming up with a final list of proposed maps for the legislature to vote on. And those final maps will be released on October 15th. All right, we have a date certain on that. This is obviously a new process for us here in New Mexico. What do you think about it so far? Do you think it's taking politics out of and partisanship out of the process from what you've seen so far? Uh, well, I, I think it gets more voices at the table, which I think is a huge success. Because mm-hmm. when you look back 10 years ago, you know, the public's input was really non-existent. Thank you. Uh, you know, now, because of the uh, the actions from the legislature, uh, the outreach from the CRC, Citizen Redistricting Committee, mm-hmm. uh, you actually have the public has a chance to go and submit their own maps, which is really it's light years in progress of getting the public involved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think the maps that we've seen have been fascinating. Uh, you know, we have we've there have been a lot of talks about uh, vertical and horizontal maps for the congressional districts. Right. Uh, and a lot of creative kind of I won't call it gerrymandering because it's just it's creative um, uh, you know, districting right now mm-hmm. because they're just providing options. Uh, and we've seen it from a number of different communities of interest. So that, I think, is a big success. 
you know, the to answer your question, though, Gene, to uh, partisanship, um, you know, hopefully when the maps move from the CRC to the legislature, mm -hmm. um, you know, our you know collective hope is, and I have uh, my firm works in this particular arena, mm -hmm. is that we would hope that whatever the CRC develops is endorsed and moved on and approved by the legislature to the governor. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think when you get the elected leaders involved in the process, uh, you know, that's when you have the opportunity for some of that gerrymandering to take place. Good points there. Uh, Martha, the committee has gone out of its way to collect input from tribes, Pueblos, and Navajo Nation in this process. And that comes after complaints that there was no Native American representation on the committee. Remember, remember, remember that when it first got going. Have they done enough so far to allay those concerns in your view? I think they've gone a long way, Gene. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it will totally allay the concerns. Okay. For those uh, watching who have not seen the web extra you did uh, with the committee members, uh, they should watch it mm -hmm. because the committee is going out of its way. As Tom said, people can uh, draw their own district, see how that would look. Uh, and mess around with the maps, if you will, on their own. Mm -hmm. And the, the real question, again, as Tom has already alluded to, is what is the legislature going to do when they get the recommendation? Right. They can go for it. They can throw it out and say, we don't like this. We're going to do something different. Uh, I would like to bring up another point that is, has already fell through the cracks again. Uh, but it's very important, and that is the districts that house prisons. And the prisoners in the prisons get counted in those districts, whether they live there or not, before they were incarcerated, they're now counted as part of that population. Yes. But the prisoners can't vote. So what is the net result? A smaller portion of the populace is, they've got a disproportionate share of uh, the vote because their numbers were pumped up uh, because of their prison populations. And I just want to read one that is totally outrageous. Santa Rosa is a host to the Guadalupe County Correctional Center. Mm -hmm. has a total population of 2,850 incarcerated people and as of and 500, um, 2,850 people and incarcerated 585, that's 20, over 20% of the wow. population wow. is incarcerated, but only five of those people in prison were actually from Santa Rosa. Interesting. So gives you an idea of the distortion of the numbers that those folks, it's called prison gerrymandering, right. it hasn't it's been around a long time, and, and yeah, that's an interesting anecdote there. Uh, Serge, Martha mentioned I did that Facebook Live on Wednesday this week with Edward Chavez. He's the chairman of the committee, as well as Brian Sanderoff of Research and Polling, and Lily Vitella Irvin. She's the, com the committee's community liaison working with all the tribes. Now, they said 1,200 people took part in this first round of public hearings. Nothing to shake your fist at, but how do we get more people involved at this really crucial stage of the process, which is right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think 1,200 does sound like a lot until you compare it to the number of people in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually think their their website and the little app they have, Districter, I think it's called, that allows yes. you to do all your own. Like they should that they should be sending that to every, you know, putting that out on Facebook and and Twitter. It's a fun little game. I yeah. had a great time playing around with it, um, and just alerting people through that through that sort of interactive way might be effective.
Um, I think, you know, there is no one more respected, uh, I think, than Justice Chavez for even handedness and ability to, to do this and his desire to do this right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they are really making a huge step by having all these meetings. But I do think, you know, that they could amplify this. And I think uh, through some non-traditional ways and catch some folks who you might not think would be interested in the whole redistricting process through some of their really exciting uses of technology. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom, I got to go back to something in a circular way to something you mentioned earlier, but it's worth remembering the legislature changed the law that created the committee's scope of work, right? Originally, they would have made the final selection on how these maps are redrawn. Now they just make a recommendation, as you mentioned. But here's my question. Will this process, is, is it big enough? Is it, you know, well known enough that lawmakers can't go off script, if you will? Does it create some kind of public pressure to not politicize the process, knowing that the public had a fairly firm hand in how this all came about? Wow. You know. Elected leaders, politicizing processes. Let, let, <laughs> let's not let that sink in. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there is a, uh, there is always the opportunity, you know, to either justify the CRC, which I think it's great because when you look at the 1,200 folks who have participated in the first round and the yes. second round, everybody has something to comment at this time. is a lot better than zero that That's goose right. egg that we had uh, 10 years ago mm -hmm. uh you know hopefully the the legislators if they do make any uh adjustments which we hope i hope that they personally do not uh because of that mandate from the crc um you know i don't know they they might but i would hope that uh you know they're they might but wouldn't that might include disrespecting a former supreme court judge i mean the reason ed chavez was chosen because he's an honest third broker here yeah justice chavez uh, really needs to be applauded for all of his work i mean he and i worked together on the new mexico first redistricting task force mm -hmm. and just the way he and just uh, judge kennedy both you know guided that process you know, they they both earned my respect. Uh, and, you know, Justice Chavez, you know, he is a voice of reason. Uh, he is a nonpartisan, uh, you know, person in this very partisan process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I hope that when the CRC delivers the maps, that the legislature legislators will look at it in mid to late December and say, you know what, the public has spoken. Uh, we go ahead and accept these and move them on to the governor. Good points there. Time to move on to other issues, but we will be talking about redistricting again very soon. And be sure to get caught up on the work so far at nmpbs.org. Want to let you know we'll have much more on the redistricting process in our next episode based on a recent Facebook Live with members of the redistricting committee and their team. So tune in for that. Uh, this is a huge and important issue. It will have lasting effects on the state for the next 10 years as we previously mentioned, and so it's important people get involved, understand the process, understand the proposed maps, and be able to make their voice heard. Also, a good time to point out, you can go to our website at nmpbs.org, click under Community, and find our redistricting page where we've got live stream archives of all of the first round, and we'll be doing the same thing starting next Tuesday, tomorrow. Uh, with the next round of public input, as well as a link to that redistricting page. All right, uh, we're going to uh, wrap things up for this episode uh, with the line opinion panel. 
Uh, this is uh, something we just don't have time for in our on-air show every week on New Mexico PBS, but like to bring it to you here. And it's how we warm up for the show each week by going around and finding out what uh, our line opinion panelists are paying attention to this week. This week, uh, we also wanted to not let the opportunity pass to check in with the line panelists on the announcement of more than two dozen indictments against former state lawmaker Cheryl Williams Stapleton. Uh, we have covered this story. No doubt you're following it. Uh, indictments have to do with basically funneling of money uh, to her private businesses and accounts as an employee of APS, where uh, she no longer works, and she did uh, resign her seat in the roundhouse. Uh, but that uh, case goes on, and there's a lot to consider why a um, grand jury, which came back with these indictments, that process as opposed to a preliminary hearing. So I wanted to get their reactions, get those to you as well. So once again, here is the line. I'm Gene Grant here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with a line opinion panelist joining me on Zoom. We're about to record this week's show, but before we do, we love to warm up by taking a turn at other issues that are on our minds. Let me start with my friend Martha Burke. Martha, you haven't been on for a while. So glad to see you via Zoom, any which way we can. What's your one more thing this week? My one more thing is how aggravated I am with the anti-vaxxers who have appropriated the language of the pro-choice movement. Mm. We've all seen the signs are out there in front of the schools and everywhere else with mm -hmm. these signs that say, my body, my choice. Mm -hmm come straight from the pro-choice movement. We want integrity over our bodies, but the issues are completely different because pregnancy, as far as I know, is neither life-threatening in general or contagious. Mm -hmm. And vaccine is both, but they seem to have made a surge to appropriate the language of pro-choice to try to discredit that and take it as their own, and I'm very aggravated about it. Mm -hmm. I don't blame you. I've heard it a lot from other people as well, that appropriating that language is very problematic in a lot of ways. Uh, Tom Garrity, always good to see you, sir. What's your one more thing this week? You know, it's really an observation uh, that mm -hmm. uh, really kind of hit me on Sunday as I was reading the Albuquerque Journal. Mm -hmm. um, it really uh, it hit me about, you know, the, how the changing face of news media and specifically print news. Mm -hmm. uh, specific, you know, in the past, it used to be that the Associated Press was the only nonprofit organization that was really used by all different news sources. Mm -hmm. uh, and now Albuquerque and New Mexico specifically has a lot more resources. Uh, for example, there's you know the traditional Searchlight New Mexico, which has had a number of uh, you know stories and papers and media around the state. Mm -hmm. uh, now there's a group called Source New Mexico, and uh, so you know which actually had a page one story on the Albuquerque Journal, and the editorial board opined on that particular story separately, not because of Source New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so I just it really struck me that you know in this changing face of news. Today, um, you know, we have more voices coming to the table, and I guess my hope and my observation is is that the editorial process that newspapers use and that news, television news, and other entities use is in place for these nonprofits um, that are also being positioned as uh, as an, an official news source by these other traditional media. Good point there. A lot of nuance in that 
uh, what you're describing there for a lot of folks that can't quite parse out where a story comes from, where, from whom, these things are important to kind of just really put out there. So, Tom, I appreciate that for sure. UNM Professor Serge Martinez, always good to have you, bro. What's your one more thing this week? So, mm -hmm. excuse me, Gene. So, this week I want to talk about immigration reform. Mm. Back in the news again for who knows how, the, how many of time. Uh, as always, broadly popular uh, issue with the American public, creating a path to citizenship and stability for the millions of folks who don't have the status that you know that would allow them to to do that here mm -hmm. um congress has been talking about passing some sort of reform uh for various arcane and partisan reasons uh tried to attach it to the budget reform or the budget reconciliation process uh going through um to go through the senate and ran into an unexpected i think roadblock with the uh, some something called the the Senate parliamentarian. Her job is to uh, look at the, the things that are trying to, the legislation that's proposed and decide whether it fits the Byzantine and abstruse and <laughs> made up completely uh, laws of the Senate, mm -hmm. right? Um, and in this case, the um, Democrat proposal to try to get that through Right. They were told that, nope, this doesn't they were advised that this doesn't fit the rules. And so, you know, this is the party in power that actually makes the rules, has the ability to do that and is trying to get something through that is, like I said, extremely popular with the American public. Mm -hmm. And now has been told, oh, you know, I'm a law professor. I love talking about teeny rules and whatnot. But this is driving me nuts. Right. This is uh, it's an advisory opinion, first of all, that they don't have to take this. But you know, they're the party in power with this design, this um, popular thing, is saying, "Oh well, sorry, guess there's nothing to be done here." Mm. Man, you're in power. Be in power, mm -hmm. right? So this is—it's a disgrace, right? Um, the opinion is advisory, but you never know it. They're just saying, "Oh, our hands are tied." Sorry, millions of Americans who are, you know, contributing so much to our society. We're just going to keep doing what we do and having this country be, you know prosper on your backs uh, without being able to, without, you know, doing anything or creating any permanence. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, it is, I don't know, I'm very frustrated. Um, you know, this is, it's happening again, where the folks in power are saying, oh, well, you know, our hands are tied, nothing to be done. Man, it's happening. It keeps happening. Mm -hmm. And my goodness, it doesn't need to keep happening. Mm -hmm. This is an issue that is, has been, it's been, since 1986 was the last time we did anything address this officially. You know, wow, that's a long later. time ago. Yep. Well past time, mm -hmm. sorry. Interesting. Hey guys, I want to throw one more out the table, um, our virtual table, <laughs> for you before we get out of here. Um, depending on your point of view, regrettably or not, there were indictments handed down for Cheryl Williams Stapleton this week, a lot of them, 26 as a matter of fact. And I'm just curious to get your reaction uh, Tom, let me start with you. You spent a little time up there in the legislature as well. Uh, interesting about the process here, having so many indictments come down so quickly. Any, any, what, I'm curious what's in your gut when you saw that uh, headline earlier this week. Well, you know, it sank, you know, for, you know, because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the perception of a bad apple, 
because, mm. you know, uh, the representative is due, uh, her due process. Yep. Uh, but to see that in, uh, you know, in print form and all of the actual indictments, you know, my heart sank because mm -hmm. uh, it, it kind of said, wow, well, I guess those things that were being accused, um, you know, have now been formalized in paper in the form of an indictment. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, so and, and everyone will have a chance to have their say. But, you know, uh, it, it was just, I think, uh, you know, rubbing uh, salt in the wound uh, and a very sore wound as far as uh, transparency and government. Mm -hmm. Good point there. Uh, Serge, how did it hit you when you saw that? I mean, she's been a power in our state for a long time and seeing anybody fall is difficult. But, you know, money being seized up to $3 million. I mean, this is serious business here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it is, you know, I'm, I am a firm believer in, you know, in innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. But not, so I don't want to jump to any conclusions. But 26 counts, 28, whatever it is, mm -hmm. that is not a small number, right? And so yep. you know, prosecutors don't do that unless they're pretty confident. They have lots and lots and lots of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. receipts on that. So it is, I mean, it's disturbing. It's dis disheartening. And you, you know, it makes me feel once again, like, what do we have to do mm -hmm. to, to, keep this from happening again and again. I mean, this- is the, is the answer a full-time legislature? I hate to make it that simple, but- I mean, look, I don't know if that's the answer, but it wouldn't hurt. I yeah. mean, and would solve a host of other issues that I complain about a lot as well. I'm with so, you. Mm -hmm. Dean, I love that idea. Let's do it. Let's do it, exactly. Want to get Martha Burke's turn on this as well. Martha, your sense of it and, and how you took that news. Well, my sense of it, first of all, Gene, is because it is so widespread, the indictments, and, and there's so many and so many accusations, mm -hmm. and again, innocent until proven guilty. But my thought was, where in the heck was the oversight mm. on stuff? It has been going on for years. So somebody dropped the ball on, on following up on oversight, overseeing what happened to the millions of dollars, it doesn't seem like rocket science. So we're asleep at the switch, as they say. Well, the switch has been changed. APS is saying they're going to make some changes to that very position that she held and you know, the power she accrued in that position. They're going to make some changes there, too. Gene, if, if I could just kind of jump in real quick mm -hmm. on you know, the, the full-time legislature. Right. Uh, I'm not convinced that that would have helped anything just because you know, it, you know, Exhibit A would be the uh, state treasurer. And you know that that is a full-time position with benefits, uh, a lot more than anything that was being proposed for legislators. Right. And you know you had some tremendous uh, corruption that was backed up uh, through court filings and verdicts. So I'm not convinced that a full-time legislature uh, would actually solve that. You just have people who you know their motivations change. Right. I hear that. That's I mean, hard to argue, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Have to wrap that up there. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico in Focus airs Friday nights and Sunday mornings right here on New Mexico PBS. And that'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. We always appreciate you tuning in, listening to the content we put together and work really hard on each week. We want to shout out our team as usual, senior producer Matt Grubbs and our producer Kathy Wimmer, as well as correspondents uh, Laura Pascas, Antonia Gonzalez, Russell Contreras, Gwyneth Doland, Megan Kamrick. 
uh, as well as our great production team headed up by production manager Anthony Lostetter and his team Aaron Senna, Robert McDermott, Kevin Maestas, and Benjamin Yaza. Uh, We hope you have a terrific weekend. We'll be back on Monday with uh, some more great content for you. We hope you have a terrific weekend. Enjoy the start of autumn, and we'll be back with you again soon. Thank you.